Good morning. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be able to be in this place, to be able to worship you, and to be able to sing songs of praise to your name. We're thankful, Lord, for the opportunity we have to open your word and to be able to, to read it and to study it. We ask, God, that in the time that we have this morning that you would help us to be able to, to push out all the other distractions that, that we may be bringing in this place. Lord, things from this past week that are still concerning us, things that uh, we uh, presume will come up in the coming week, Father, that are, are clawing for attention. Father, we pray that we would be able to, to, to put those out of our minds, not because they don't matter, but because the thing that really does matter is that we spend time hearing from you. We desperately want to hear from you this morning. We want your, your Holy Spirit to speak to us through your word. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are receptive to that which you would have us to know from your holy scriptures this morning. Father, you do that, we will be so grateful and we will give you all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. And we thank you for this time this morning. And all God's people said, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me to Mark's Gospel, the 12th chapter. Mark chapter 12. And if you have been with us, we've been on a journey through the Gospel of Mark now for some time. And if you were with us last week, you'll remember that back in verses 13 through 17, we, we were reading and studying about a confrontation that took place where a group of people sent from the Sanhedrin, who was the ruling Jewish body there in, in, in Jerusalem and, and for the Israelites, sent a delegation of, of men, some of whom were Herodians, some of whom were Pharisees, and these two groups were just as far opposite as you could imagine. They were opposite socially, and they were opposite politically, and yet they found common ground in the fact that they, were, they, they did not like Jesus. In fact, they hated him, and they wanted him to desperately to be moved from the Jewish scene. They wanted him to be eradicated from, from Jewish life, and so they, they combined their mentalities and their thought processes and their their, all of their actions together to go and to confront Jesus in order to, to trap him and to, to really to catch him in his words. And, and if you recall, how they wanted to do that was, was they wanted to ask him whether or not it was lawful or whether or not it was right for the Jewish people to pay their taxes to Caesar. And I'll be honest with you, I found it to be quite humorous that we found ourselves studying that, that passage on April the 15th last week. And I just thought, you know, this is, you, you couldn't ask for the Lord to have teed it up any better than that. And so we looked at that, and what you'll recall if you were studied that passage is you'll, you'll go back and look is that even though they came at him with everything they had, Jesus, Jesus answered them with such an astounding answer that it silenced them. And matter of fact, it, it, it amazed them to the point where, where they didn't have even a comeback for him. And so the Herodians and the Pharisees, they left and they were stunned, but that didn't mean that the attempts to trap Jesus we're going to cease. As a matter of fact, what we begin reading as we look at the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is that the fires of hatred and the fires of a desire to really, to really uh, uh, destroy Jesus burned even brighter than they had ever burned before. So in our continued study of Mark's gospel this morning, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 12, we learn of another confrontation that takes place this time spearheaded by a smaller, lesser known, yet still very powerful group of religious leaders. 
So let's read about them this morning. Let's hear how they try to trap Jesus. Beginning in verse 18, hear the word of God this morning as it says this, Then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him. And they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third, likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God, and may he add his blessings to the reading of his word this morning. Now, much like last week, I want to give you a basic outline that identifies the key components of this passage. And then, then I want us to then examine what the, this passage has to say as far as application to us and what we can draw from it, from what Jesus says to us. And, and just as we've read, Mark tells us that no sooner did, did Jesus shut down that delegation of Herodians and Pharisees than another group comes who are trying to, with underhanded motives, to discredit Jesus and to and to prove that what he believed was utter foolishness. Mark tells us that this next group that confronts Jesus in the temple were, as the first point on your outline uh, lets you know this morning, they were the Sadducees. The Sadducees. And so really, having been introduced to them, we need to ask who were this group of people? Who were these people? And what did they believe? And really, we probably ought to ask it another way. What did they not believe? That's probably a better way to approach it. Historians typically understand that the Sadducees were, were mostly the aristocrats of Jewish society. They were what we would call the upper crust. They were the ones who came from prominent priestly families. And as a result, they had power and they had prestige. And consequently, they, along with the Pharisees, constituted the two dominant influences upon the Sanhedrin, which, as we previously noted, was the Jewish ruling party who desperately wanted to see Jesus move, removed from society. Now, the interesting thing about the Sadducees is that they were as opposite of the Pharisees as the Herodians were. The Sadducees were as opposite of the Pharisees theologically as the Herodians had been opposite of the Pharisees politically. And, and here's how we know that. According to what we kind of read about them and about their belief system, we recognize that Unlike the Pharisees, the Sadducees did not believe in angels or, or demons or anything along those lines. 
Unlike the Pharisees who followed and taught and believed all of the Old Testament, including all of the historical books and the poetic books and the prophetic books, in addition to the Law of Moses, the Sadducees only held to the Law of Moses. They only held to the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, as we know it as the Pentateuch. Furthermore, unlike the Pharisees, the Sadducees denied the existence of the afterlife. They denied the existence of a heaven or a hell, and they also denied the, the resurrection that would occur as well. In fact, many preachers and Sunday school teachers, and even some of my seminary professors always can say, well, that's how they got their name. You see, they didn't believe in angels, and they didn't believe in heaven, and they didn't believe in the resurrection, therefore that's why they were sad, you see. So Mark tells us in verse 18 that some of these Sadducees came to Jesus to question him. And then he clearly tells us right up front, they did not believe in the resurrection. And it is that fact that sheds light on the nature of their question that they actually ask. And so I want you to note the second point on your outline this morning, and it's this. What I've alerted you to is their insincere question. Their insincere Question. The question actually comes all the way down in verse 23. It's a question about the resurrection, which Mark has already told us they didn't believe in. Now, the fact that they didn't believe in the resurrection tells us that they weren't sincere in the question they were going to ask about the resurrection. They were disingenuous with regard to what they wanted. They were looking for something that they could start an argument with Jesus about. They only wanted to start an argument so that they could cause Jesus to look foolish. And by doing that, they would be able to discredit him. But notice what they do. They engage in a really elaborate setup before they ask the question. And that elaborate setup comes in verses 19 through 22. In fact, when I was in school, I wasn't bad at math. I was actually decent at math. But I, any math teachers? Good. What I hated was those math problems that they would give you that was the word problems, and it'd be about a half a page long, and you'd have to read through it and see all of these different details. You know, if man one leads and goes west at 72 miles an hour, and a woman leads and goes east at 23 miles an hour, and, and somebody else goes north at 16, where, where are they going to be when they stop for lunch? That's the kind of question. And it would drive me crazy because I couldn't handle all those details, and, and I couldn't figure out what at all that they were trying to get to. Well, I want you to notice that in some respects, that's kind of the way the Sadducees set this, this question up for Jesus. They really weren't interested in his answer. They simply wanted to confuse the issue with a lot of points. And what I want you to know is they really wanted to know this. When the resurrection happens, whose wife would a woman be if she'd been married to seven different brothers during her lifetime? Now, as background for this question, I want you to know that the Sadducees' outlandish question really, it had biblical rooting. It, it, it found its place there in the Old Testament in what is known as Leveret Law. And in fact, listen to the instructions that Moses writes down in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. You're welcome to go back and read it later for yourself. Moses says this, if brothers dwell together, and when he refers to brothers there, he's referring to brothers that are related by blood, that they are, they are brothers who, have, who, are, who are related to one another. And he says, if those who are brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, 
The widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duties of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his, dad, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. You see, in ancient times, if a man died without a child, without a son, according to Leverett Law, it was necessary for his unmarried brother to marry his widow in order to provide his deceased brother with an heir. And that deceased man's widow would marry her brother-in-law and the first son that was produced from that marriage was considered the legal descendant of the deceased brother. Now, there was a practical reason for why that was put in place. And it had to do with land possessions and it had to do with with, with, with the possessions in the family that were always going to the son. And so the practical reason was is that Moses said, do that because we don't want an outside stranger to come in and marry and then the, the, the possessions of the land be, be pilfered away in that direction. Now, I don't want to get lost on that point this morning. I just simply want you to know that the question that the Sadducees come and ask comes from the book of Deuteronomy and the writing of Moses and was a legitimate law that Moses had penned. But what the Sadducees do is they take that legitimate law, the Leverett law, and then they just blow it up with this hypothetical, really absurd kind of scenario. And they ask the question, well, what if? Do you like what if questions? I personally love what if questions. Tongue permanently planted in my cheek when I say that. I've got a little six-year-old that loves to ask me what-if questions. Daddy, what if this happens? Or what if, what if when I'm playing in my game today, I do this? What do you think of this? All these what-if questions. And most of the time, they just, they run down a, a, a trail so far that it's hard to even really draw them back in. Well, that was almost what the Sadducees did here. They said, what if a woman is married to a man and that man dies and they have no son and then she marries his brother and then they get married and then he dies before they have a son and then so he, she marries the next brother and then he dies before they have a son and on and on and on it goes until they say he, she's married all seven brothers. Well, the first thing that hits my mind is, what if there was an eighth brother? What do you think that guy was thinking? Man, it hadn't turned out too well for the other seven husbands. I don't think I want to take her as my wife. Well, then I, think, then I think about it this way. I go, what are the odds of that happening? I mean, honestly, an actuary could probably take this and try to figure out how many, how many times could this legitimately take place. And the truth of the matter is, the odds of this scenario like this ever occurring would be next to none. And the reason why the Sadducees went that direction is because they wanted to take a hypothetical situation that seemed so absurd on the surface because they really didn't care for an answer. They wanted to draw people in to the absurdity of what Jesus might say. And so they get down to their question in verse 23. They say, therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Now, I believe there are two real reasons, and I've kind of already stated what they are, why they pose this question. First of all, I believe that they just really wanted to show that the basic belief in the resurrection was just a a theologically uh, errant thing to believe in. As a matter of fact, I think they were going to use this question as a way to poke holes in the Pharisees and Jesus, both of whom believed in the resurrection. So they were using it as a way to, as a matter of fact, many believe that this was a question that, that many of the Sadducees taught their kids to ask 
in schools so that they could show themselves to be mentally astute and to be able to argue against the resurrection. So that's the first reason I think they do it. But secondly, as I've mentioned, I believe that they were trying to trick Jesus and they were also trying to destroy any thought of him as the Messiah in the eyes of the people. But as we've seen on multiple occasions earlier in our study of Mark's gospel, we know that every time that Jesus is confronted by someone who wants to lock horns with him, either logically or theologically, they always end up on the losing end. And that is absolutely what happens here in this text as well. In fact, notice the third point on your outline this morning. Jesus alerts the Sadducees to their big mistake. Their big mistake. Verse 24, Jesus asks, Are you not therefore mistaken? That's how he starts his response. And then notice how he ends his response in verse 27. He, he says, you are therefore greatly mistaken. And then, and then as the ESV curtly translates it, it says, you are quite wrong. I just like that one. You are quite wrong. You know if Jesus ever says that to you, it's bad. You are quite wrong. So, so we need to ask, though, what caused the Sadducees to end up so mistaken? What caused them to be so wrong? Or as the Greek word actually means, what caused them to drift off course so far that they traveled outside the realm that they should have been in? Well, Jesus identifies two causes there in verse 24. I've listed for them, I've listed them separately for you there in points A and B under, under, Roman, over, under number two. Nope. Points A and B under number three. Notice what he says. He says that, first of all, they were ignorant of the Scriptures. That's how they got off track. First of all, they're ignorant of the Scriptures. And then point B tells us this, they were ignorant of the power of God. You're ignorant of the Scriptures, you don't know the Scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. I like really how Jesus responds to them. In fact, John MacArthur has summed up Jesus' terse reply back to these guys who were trying to trip him up and discredit him, he, he says that instead of fumbling over how to reply and then failing to come up with a coherent answer as the Sadducees expected, Jesus really just flips the table on them. And metaphorically speaking, he, he does this. He asks the question hoping to reveal, they ask the question hoping to reveal his supposed ignorance and incompetence. Yet his question not only exposed them as fools, but also unqualified to be teachers themselves since they demonstrated a lack of understanding of both the Scriptures and the power of God. Notice that Jesus refutes both of their errors, and he does it in reverse order. They started talking about the Scriptures and then went to the power of God. He goes to the power of God first and begins to refute their argument from that. And he does it by, by addressing their issue regarding how they didn't understand God's power, and he does that in verse 25. Notice what he says. He says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. You see, the Sadducees demonstrated an ignorance of the power of God because they failed to understand that the life to come is not simply a continuation of the world as it currently is. In fact, Kent Hughes has noted, that the underlying assumption behind the Sadducees' question was that in the resurrection, they believed that families would just simply take up their living where they left off on earth. But Jesus says that was far too earthbound of a vision. It, it was a vision that was short-sighted. It was a vision that, that lacked recognition of just how powerful and just how mighty and really just how good God truly is. 
Jesus says that, that a marital union between a man and a woman that is a conjugal relationship designed to produce offspring is not a relationship that continues in heaven. In fact, he says men and women who rise from the dead will be like angels. Now, I want you to notice, he does not say that when they rise from the dead, they will become angels. Jesus does not say that. That is an error that has come into a modern understanding is that when we die, we just become angels. We sprout wings and we float on, on clouds and play harps. That is absolutely not what the scriptures teach. He says we will be like angels. That's an important word because it tells us that we're not going to become angels, but we will be like them in this way. What way? We will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Now, I want you to know that key piece of information has stumped a lot of people. Particularly, it has stumped married folks who have enjoyed their lives together here on earth. For some, for some it's really hard for them to imagine heaven being a place where they do not continue their life just as they had it here on earth, being married to their spouse. But what I want you to know is that I don't believe that what Jesus says here suggests even the slightest reduction in love. In fact, I believe that in heaven, once we have been clothed with our resurrection bodies, bodies like Jesus had when he rose from the dead on the third day, bodies that, that will, will, will be raised from the dead like his was, then I believe that we will be ourselves, but we will be our ultimate best at that point. And I believe that that will allow us to be more loving and more capable of loving than ever before. I'm going to come back to that in just a few moments, but let me just state it as unequivocally as I can. While I believe that the scriptures teach us that our identity will be preserved throughout eternity, I also believe that it tells us that we will be changed by the power of God to be all that he had ever created us to be. And I believe that what that is is greater and grander than anything that you and I can possibly imagine. So, the Sadducees, they demonstrated an ignorance of the power of God. But then Jesus goes on to address the fact that they were also ignorant of the Scriptures. Even of the very Scriptures that, that they affirmed. You see, Jesus could have argued against them in, in regards to the resurrection. And he could have pointed to Old Testament passages to prove his point. In fact, he could have pointed probably to the most ancient of Old Testament texts, the one that probably was penned before all the rest of them, chronologically speaking, and it would have come from the book of Job. And in Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, Job writes this and he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. That is one of the clearest, clearest passages of Scripture that affirm the resurrection, the physical bodily resurrection of which the New Testament also speaks. But I want you to know, even in spite of all of that, the Sadducees would have not been moved one iota from that passage because it did not occur in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, in the first five books. So Jesus masterfully didn't go there or any other place he actually goes back to the writings of Moses to refute the whole, the, the whole argument that the Sadducees would like to engage in. And he does that in verses 26 and 27 by saying, Look, concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. That was a direct quote, by the way, from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. And I want you to note that Jesus hangs his argument in favor of the resurrection on the very tense of the verb that's there. Because what God did not say, he did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I used to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Everything Jesus says there hangs on the tense of that verb. And what the logic behind that is, is that God is not the God of those who are deceased and turned into dust. He's not going to be the God of those who are dead and long gone and never have a chance to live again. No, as a matter of fact, we could even say it this way. We could even say that, that when he talks about that there, he says, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are nothing more than dust, God cannot now at this moment be their God. Because why? He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. He's not the God of those who cease to be. He's the God of those that still are. Consequently, Jesus clearly refutes the Sadducees' mistaken argument by using the very texts that they would have said are the only authoritative texts that there are. And he says, God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. You are therefore quite wrong. So having used clear logic and having used the very scriptures that they affirm to metaphorically speaking just put a slam dunk on them, what you learn is, Mark doesn't tell us this, Luke goes on to say, no one dared ask him anything else. I wouldn't either, would you? I mean, makes sense. So to recap, we've identified who the Sadducees are. We've identified what they did not believe. We've also looked at the, very, the, the big mistake that they made, their insincere question that was funneled by a big mistake in their logical reasoning. And we've been able to determine that they didn't understand the power of God and that they were ignorant of their own scriptures. The question is, what do we do with that? How do we pull it forward? How do we, how do we apply that to today? How does it affect our lives? Well, that's the fourth point that I want us to take up in the remainder of our time this morning. And it's simply this. It's the implications. The implications. As I promised, I want to go back and consider the implication of what we've learned from Jesus' word. And the first sub-point that I want you to see, sub-point number A, is this. The resurrection will not be a continuation of this life, but a transformation to a life that is infinitely better. Think about that. The resurrection is not just something that's a simple continuation of this life. It's actually the transformation to a life that is infinitely better than anything you and I can possibly imagine. You see... While Jesus' words tell us that in the life to come, marriage, that's, that's the subject on the table, that marriage as we know it, that exists between a man and a woman, will no longer exist. In other words, there will, be, there will not be a continuation of the marital relationship in heaven as we currently know it. What I want you to know is in spite of him telling us that, that doesn't mean that we should assume that all relationships that we enjoy with our spouses will come to an end. In fact... As Randy Alcorn has written in his book about heaven, in fact, the book is titled Heaven, he says, Jesus said that the institution of human marriage would end having fulfilled its purpose, but he never hinted that deep relationships between married people would end. Alcorn goes on to write that the Bible never claims that there will be no marriage in heaven. In fact, 
it makes clear there will be a marriage in heaven. What it says is that there will be one marriage between Christ and his bride and we'll all be a part of it. In other words, the marriages that exist here on earth, really they're signposts. They are things to point us to the ultimate, most, most fulfilling, most completely satisfying marriage that any of us could ever hope for, our marriage to Christ. And what that means is that in the resurrection, God replaces our earthly marriages with something that is far better, never worse. To quote Alcorn one last time, he says this, being married to Christ will be the ultimate thrill. Now, if that's true, about the institution of marriage, well, can we not also apply the same logic to everything else we experience in this life? You know, we talk about that in the resurrection we will have new bodies. Bodies that won't wear out, bodies that won't grow old, bodies that will never get sick. And I am so grateful for that because it's going to be better than anything that we've ever experienced in this life. But can the same logic not be applied to everything else that we love and that we enjoy and that thrills us? You see, unfortunately, many people believe, many people believe that heaven is only a, an extension of what life is like here. David Garland writes in his commentary, people understand the resurrection life as a wish for an earthly utopia, a place where human beings wind up at the center of that life rather than God. But the scriptures remind us again and again that God himself will be the focus of our love and our affection and we will he will himself be the very center of our joy when we're there and what that reminds us is is that to consider heaven from our earthly perspective is ultimately impossible you also remember that Paul told us that in this life we see how through a glass dimly but then he promises but then when we're there we'll see him face to face in other words there are many things about that life that we still do not know one day we will. We will know it with clarity. In the meantime, what we have to recognize is that every image that we have of heaven is really tainted by our earthly images. The truth be told, we don't know the depths of the joys that God has in store for those who belong to Him. Nevertheless, we can be absolutely certain of this. What awaits us is better than anything we could ever imagine. We will be ourselves but we will be changed. And the relationships that we have will still exist, but they will be different. And what we can be certain of is that there will be absolutely no disappointment in heaven in any way. So that's the first thing that the implication that I believe from this text tells us. The resurrection will not be a continuation of this life, but a transformation to a life that is infinitely better. But notice the last one this morning, and this one's important too. The last implication is this. The resurrection assures us that death cannot change our relationship with God. Death cannot change our relationship with God. In this life, loved ones die. And when they do, our hearts grieve. Just as Ted mentioned earlier, we've got two families in our church that are dealing with that just this week. The Shiver family, the Stady family. We have other families in this church that are anticipating the death of a loved one. It just could be at any time. And whenever that happens, I want you to know, even as believers, our hearts grieve because death changes things finally for us here in this life. We go on and we realize that, that, that when that person is dead and gone, we're left with a hole in our lives and a hole in our heart that can't be filled. 
And inevitably, the, the tense of our verbs always go to past tense. He was my dad. She was my mom. He was my husband. She was my wife. He was my son. She was my daughter. It's always past tense. But not so with God. You see, the Bible tells us that when a person dies in the Lord, they are blessed. How is it possible that the Bible can say that those who die in the Lord are blessed only because of this? When we die in the Lord, we don't cease to be. We become all that He created us to be. And He can say, I'm not, I was not their God, I am their God. Just as He said of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, death does not change our relationship with God. God has a place that is prepared for those who will by faith receive His grace and His mercy. And he promises one day to receive us to himself, that where he is, there we may be also. That is a promise that comes. And you know how that promise is, you know where the exclamation point of that promise comes? It comes in the fact that a Savior was sent by God himself, Jesus the Christ. And he came and lived a perfect, sinless, holy life, a life that you could not live, a life that I could not live. And by living that perfect, sinless, holy life, he satisfied the righteousness of God. And in doing so, he paved the way for sinners like you and I to have hope. But then God punished his son as if he were a sinner, as if he had lived the life that you and I had lived. Jesus was punished on a cross for our sins and he suffered and died in our place as our substitute. And then the Bible says that he was taken down from that cross and laid in a tomb. And as far as the world was concerned, that was all that there was to it. He was a man who had lived. He was somebody who was a good teacher. But on the third day, the Bible says that God raised him from the dead and by doing that gave him a resurrected body that serves as the example for what you and I will one day have. And because that is true, the Bible clearly tells us that those who will place their faith in the crucified, buried, and resurrected Jesus will one day be, receive a resurrected body just like his. And so this is what I would say to you this morning. The truth of this gospel is opened up to you through faith. It is not opened up through, to you through your works, through your good deeds, through your acts of kindness. It is opened up to you through the faith that you exhibit in Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. It is the confidence in that which we do not know and cannot be understood, cannot measure in this life. But one day, the Bible says, it will be just as true as anything else that you and I have ever known. In fact, it'll even be truer because he has promised his power to those, that resurrection power to those who will receive him by faith. All of that then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Through faith in Jesus who died and rose again, we are assured of God's promise and power to raise us from the dead to a life that far surpasses our greatest imaginations. Brothers and sisters, is that where your faith's at this morning? Have you trusted in him for your salvation? Is he your hope for eternity? If not, why not? 
Why refuse the grace and the mercy that he offers you? I would encourage you this morning to consider the truth claims of this text. Consider what Jesus says about himself. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then he asks that question. Do you believe this? Do you? I would say don't continue to trust in yourself and in your own goodness. Let it not be said of you in eternity what was said to these Sadducees on this occasion. You are quite wrong. May that never be said of you this morning. May you humble yourself before the Almighty God. Trust in his provision for your salvation in Jesus Christ. And all God's people said.